The future of heritage buildings throughout the country is less certain after the February earthquake in Christchurch. While there's public support for their retention, there's little in the way of financial incentives available for property owners to do strengthening and restoration work. As Dunedin correspondent Lorna Perry has been finding out in this Radio New Zealand Insight, there are many who think heritage buildings are a luxury. I'm sorry they've killed people and the chances of them uh, getting any future I think is, is to say the least bleak. Uh, personally, I'd have them down tomorrow because uh, while they, they are uh, part of our past history, uh, they have no place in our future history. The response to these comments from the Earthquake Recovery Minister, Jerry Brownlee, was loud and clear. There is no reason to rush the demolition. Most people were actually killed in two non-heritage buildings. Christchurch does not need to lose more than is necessary. It would be disappointing to think the tragic loss of life is going to link itself with the tragic loss of heritage. We don't want to see pell-mell demolition of every heritage building that's partly damaged. Before Brownlee et al condemn all of Christchurch's heritage, perhaps they should remember that the buildings that caused most loss of life were not heritage buildings. It's not the first time a public outcry has been sparked because an historic building is under threat. In Auckland earlier this year, three Art Deco buildings in the suburb of St Heliers were knocked down to make way for a business centre. It's just an absolute disaster for Auckland's heritage. It goes on and on and on and on. Around the same time in Wellington, a stop work order was issued when a well-known 1880s building in the city centre was about to be demolished, although in the end it was brought down. And in Dunedin, an online petition was started to gather support for an 1875 building that had partially collapsed to be retained and restored. In the last case, the building was on a waiting list to be registered as having historic value, a process the Historic Places Trust Chief Executive Bruce Chapman says is lengthy. There are around 250 places on the waiting list at the moment and we would, be, um, we would get through about uh, 10 or 11 of those in a year. So there is a very long waiting list for new registrations to be added to the register. The Historic Places Trust register lists over five and a half thousand places which are of historic or cultural significance to New Zealand. 17% are Category 1, buildings that have special or outstanding significance to New Zealand. The rest fall into Category 2. Once a building is registered with the Historic Places Trust, it's then up to the local council as to whether it accepts the advice of the trust and incorporates the building into its own district plan. That process isn't clear enough for the Property Council of New Zealand's Chief Executive, Connell Townsend, who says local authorities need to provide more certainty for developers when it comes to heritage buildings. Certainty from the council. We have to know, is it on your register or is it not? If it's not on the register, you must not change the rules. And if there's public uh, hue and cry, suddenly change the rules. You must never do that. It's either on or it's off. Peter Entwistle is an architectural historian based in Dunedin. You see that one there? Yeah. And that one there? And that one there? They're all Victorian buildings. Oh, they were built in the early 1860s, about 1862, 1863. Most people don't know it, they don't realise it. As soon as you look up from the footpath to the first storey level of the main street in Dunedin, there are the trademark signs of yesterday's architecture. The arched windows, the decorative masonry, the stone pillars, many of them a lasting legacy of the gold rush in the 1860s. 
Peter Entwistle says there are thousands of buildings in Dunedin alone that aren't properly researched or recorded. Heritage is based on certain things, like this is a building of architectural distinction. This building uh, is unusual in, in that the, you know, the nature of its construction. Um, this building is associated with a famous event, person, whatever. Now, if, if all you've got is, ah, oh, here's a building, who's the, you know, it's at number 248 Princess Street. Okay, it's got a shop in it, you know, and uh, we'll look and see, who, you know, on the City Council's website, who's paying the rates. Oh, God, there we are, now we know all about it. You know, of course not. Some of the, these buildings have been here 140 years, 150 years. They've had all sorts of associations and things, and also complicated things happening on the site. Uh, so they can become very unclear, you know, whether what you're looking at now is original or not. And to make a determination of the heritage value of a building, you first have to have all that information. The chair of the Canterbury Heritage Building's Earthquake Trust Fund, Anna Crichton, says there are many buildings in Christchurch that are unique. The neo-Gothic or the Gothic revival buildings that we have here that aren't in any other, any other city in New Zealand. And certainly um, the, the critical mass of them are quite unique um, internationally and globally. So uh, they're extremely unique. Um, you've, you know, you've got fabulous, fabulous buildings in Christchurch that you won't see anywhere else in the world. Anna Crichton says many character buildings have been converted into restaurants, shops or cafes. That changing use of buildings is important to their continuing relevance to a city and its residents. Architectural historian Douglas Lloyd Jenkins says historic structures contribute towards a person's sense of place and their attachment to a city. Well, I think, in essence, buildings are they're part of a web of memory that people use when they navigate cities. And if you think of it, if you're a visitor to a city, you navigate by the road signs. But if you're a resident of a city, you navigate by knowing where the buildings are and knowing the sequence and the associations of those buildings. And I think as you develop more and more of a sense of place and more of an attachment to those, that level of memory builds. And I think the very good example is that if you grew up in a town your parents grew up in, you end up transferring their stories and your stories together and so you know that that's where your mother worked or that's where your grandparents worked or you make those associations or this is where we went as a child. And so you sort of build a map, a map of memory, which translates into that sense of place. And a sense of place is something in New Zealand we're always talking about, you know, sense of place. And we often go and say, well, our sense of place is based around landscape features. Um, but it's not really, because your real sense of place is where you live, and most New Zealanders actually live in cities. And so their attachment is through memory, and those memories are generally, really, through buildings. And what happens then if a building is knocked down? Well, I think you can end up with a, a, a very uh, real experience of loss. The demolition of some of Christchurch's most historic structures is underway. Well, this is a site which uh, will be repeated thousands of times in Christchurch. I've just watched the destruction of this old mansion, and uh, as the council goes around and checks all of these old structures, uh, sadly, this is a site which, as I say, will be uh, repeated many more times. As a Christchurch girl, yeah, I can't comprehend seeing this corner flat. 
it's a sad day. My old man used to drink here in the old days with the six o'clock swill. Well, it's very sad, and I feel very nervous about what might go up in its place. Since February the 22nd, uh, and the devastating violence that was uh, done to the city, and the loss of buildings, and I have to say that the lot, you know, I'm not denigrating or putting out of my mind in any way the loss of life, which of course is more significant than anything else. But um, the loss of buildings has shown us that nobody in this country is safe from an act of nature like this, and it could happen anywhere. The Historic Places Trust says there were 174 buildings that were registered Category 1 or 2 within the Christchurch Central Business District. One had to be demolished after the September quake and after the February earthquake only six of the Category 1 buildings were demolished and 15 of the Category 2 buildings. Anna Crichton says the city lost a large proportion of not listed but nevertheless character buildings. The sad part about that was that because they were the backs of the buildings and therefore not, not seen as being significant, you know, you put all your dressing on the front, they, they were made of brick. There were some owners who just uh, took the money and, and uh, didn't bother doing repairs and maintenance and their buildings came down. You've got the building owners who are passionate about their buildings. They did um, consistently repairs and maintenance and, um, and upgrading and the, the character buildings and heritage buildings that had earthquake strengthening, they're still standing. But it's not a cheap or quick process to restore a building that has character or is heritage listed. So we, we, spend, um, we spend about a million dollars on doing the... Richard Peebles, co-owner of Ferry Oak Properties, has been involved with heritage building refurbishment in Christchurch. It's massively more expensive, you know, to refurbish a building probably costs you more than knocking it down and building a new one. But against that, you've got end up with a product which is superior. You get a lot of people that want to lease it. Um, you know, we never had any problems leasing our heritage buildings. So once they're refurbished and you at least put the modern facilities, you know, the toilets and the kitchens and the internet and the cabling and the power, people love them. But the February earthquake resulted in extensive damage. Richard Peebles says the company has lost up to 13 buildings and will now be focused on rebuilding. He says he no longer wants to work on heritage buildings because the associated process makes it not worth doing. The process is mind-numbing. It's just unbelievable. You would not, If someone went through and had a look at all the emails and the letters and the requests for further information and the people we had to negotiate with on that, just on that Morehouse Ave, boom, they would not actually believe what we had to do. It was just amazing. How many times we redesigned the building to deal with, you know, the Christchurch City Council and then the Historic Places Trust and then the Civic Trust and everyone wanted input. You know, it might have been our building but we had very little say in what happened. You'd have some buildings though that you've successfully, like heritage buildings, historical buildings that you have managed to refurbish and get a return on. In the building which we obeyed all the bylaws and laws it was a financial disaster. 
Right now, the Historic Places Act is in the process of being amended, changes which the Trust's Bruce Chapman says are aimed at streamlining the consent process for building owners. Meanwhile, heritage restoration is taking place around the country. We're standing on the very busy Princess Street. I've just pretty much walked out of the RNZ office and right next door is a heritage restoration work in progress. And its designer, or it's uh, the person who's working on it at the moment, is uh, Ted Daniels. Whereabouts are we exactly standing? The, the, the building we, we are standing in front of is the old standard building, what has been uh, defaced in uh, 1969. It's uh, been painted bright red and uh, it looks pretty ugly. Uh, so we, we're trying to restore it and bring it back to uh, what it was in 1874. For months I've wandered past or underneath this scaffolding and always wondered what's actually inside the building. So uh, can we go yep. check it out? Yeah, feel free. Come, come in. <laughs> Oh wow! Definitely, is a is it looks like a work in progress. Yes, for sure. It's a, it's a wee bit of a mess, and uh... it looks like a huge amount of work to be done. I mean, you have you have stone walls exposed. You've got a lot of rubble on the floor. You've also got uh, the ceiling. There's a hole in the in the ceiling. How much work has got to go into bringing this up to scratch? It's quite a lot of work uh, still. Uh, it will be probably at least another year, maybe two years. Uh, um, but uh, at the moment we're cleaning everything out what is not needed or what, what is damaged and uh, so we can have a new slate to work from. For Ted Daniels, restoring this piece of history as well as the neighbouring building is a long-term project. It's not very profitable at the moment uh, because you, you still have to pay the insurance, you pay the rates, you pay, pay all, all the other costs uh, so it's, uh, it's a little bit of a gamble really but... Uh, at the end, you're trying to make it work. What's keeping you in it? Obviously, there's a long-term goal there. That's right, yeah. At the end, it's just trying to make buildings work and be able to be rented out. Finding the right workers for heritage restoration also isn't easy. Hi, my name's Daniel Pollard and I'm from Wingatui out in Dominion. I'm a plaster conservator. I, I'm only one of one or two of, of me in the country. Um, I have a master's degree in building conservation. So not only having the practical skills, I also have the relevant conservation knowledge uh, that is, is required when working with heritage fabric. And do you find that that's crucial for doing work on these types of buildings? I think it's critical because before I studied for the master's degree, I was working on the likes of Windsor Castle and projects like that in the UK. And... There would always be this divide between the us and the conservators, the, you know, the architects and the cons conservation architects. Yet it wasn't until really I, I studied the master's degree that I understood why they had that approach and why you know, things were so important and why the conservation principles were so important to adopt and, and to adhere by. Currently walking up to Jeff Dickey's place. Apparently he's in the middle of renovations of doing what he does best working on heritage houses. Hello, is it Jeff? Hi. Nice to meet you. Yeah, it is a passion. Um, I have a personal interest in this house. My children are fourth generation here. But I think overall it's, uh, it's important to leave something for all New Zealanders, whether it's me living here or someone else living here. It's nice to actually um, leave something better than when you arrived. 
Jeff Dickey says he's in the minority and currently there are very few financial incentives available to attract property owners to do work on heritage buildings. Private property investors are up against it a bit in terms of taking on these projects and most of the people you see do it, really do it out of a bit of a passion at the moment. But a few incentives and particularly nationally, if you looked at Dunedin and um, it's introducing new earthquake uh, requirements, you think by earthquake proofing the city there'd be some uh, sort of pro rata thing from national government in terms of lessening liability and similarly from the Insurance Council. Uh, if a local community like this is um, creating a less risk environment for people and for buildings, it should in some way be supported financially. The Property Council's Connell Townsend says the developer's point of view is almost always that it's a cheaper option to bulldoze and redevelop than retrofit heritage. The developer has to go to the bank and to the bank manager and say, hey, I need some um, gearing in here to do this project. And the bank manager might look at it and go, you want to retrofit this heritage? Or do you want to bulldoze and redevelop? You know, a redevelopment job's going to be much cheaper. I might be prepared to bank roll you for um, a, a complete new development. And that's, that's a tough economic decision that has to be made. Now, if the city really wants to keep the building and say, well, the city probably is then going to say, well, we'll have to backfill the hole between the two and make it worth your while to do the, do the heritage. The financial incentives currently available include the National Heritage Preservation Incentive Fund. $250,000 are distributed through the Historic Places Trust, a Crown entity, to private owners of Category 1 registered historic buildings. The Trust says there is also assistance through the Lottery's Grants Board Heritage Committee and in Christchurch there is the Christchurch Heritage Buildings Fund. The Historic Places Trust's Bruce Chapman says his organisation has also been encouraging district councils to provide owners with other incentives, such as allowing a wider range of activities for heritage buildings, for example professional offices in a residential area. Probably the, the uh, most significant schemes in that regard have been in places like the CBD of Auckland, where there have been tradable development rights offered, additional floor space, for example, in return for um, the conservation of a heritage building. So those tradable development rights become saleable, um, and it means that, that property owners don't actually face a, a financial penalty by not uh, building, for example, a commercial building or rebuilding a commercial building to the maximum height uh, and floor ratios permissible under the district plan. The Dunedin City Council also has its own set of incentives based on assisting people when they're restoring or upgrading buildings rather than just maintaining them. There's a rates relief policy available for owners of buildings that are incorporated into the city's district plan as well as a separate heritage fund of $80,000. But Dunedin City Councillor Lee Vandervis says it will ultimately come down to the owner to foot the bill. Rolling back some of the red tape, um, giving rates relief, uh, there's even been a suggestion that if people want to do up their buildings, the chief building inspector here has even, even looked kindly on the idea of actually foregoing some of the fairly expensive consent fees. Um, that's, that's the extent that we're going to at the moment, and I'm sure if he hears this he'll be pleased to hear that it's official now. Most of these financial incentives are available for owners of buildings that are either listed as heritage on the Historic Places Trust Register or are incorporated into a council's district plan. But if a building isn't listed on either of these, it's up to the owner to pay for any work to be done on it.
which the Property Council of New Zealand says is generally an accepted responsibility. But Connell Townsend says problems arise when developers want to bulldoze and start afresh. They have got resource consent to demolish and rebuild. They may even have plans for new building that might be a superb example of great urban design. It may be in 100 years' time the future heritage. And suddenly locals who are afraid of change decide they'll use the word heritage in inverted commas to describe what is an old dunga. They'll picket it. They'll destroy value from the owner. They could in fact bankrupt the owner. Um, and it was never heritage. He says there's an overwhelming sense that the property owner should be expected to carry the burden if the public decides the building should be saved when it has a resource consent for demolition. And I personally find that view outrageous. It's a complete infringement of a private property right. And um, no, I think effectively the public are now insisting that they become a part owner, in inverted commas, or at least a stakeholder in the future of that building, if they want to buy some equity in the pot, then they have to front up with cash. The Trust's Bruce Chapman says that's a reasonable argument. What's happening in an economic sense is that the the owner is facing all of the costs of, of providing something that is of public benefit, but isn't actually able to capture any economic value. So in, in a classical economic sense, you have an externality, and um, in, in a uh, an efficient system, the government should step in and either subsidise the owner uh, to make up the difference um, or provide some form of incentive to recognise that public value. When it comes to potential costs for the property owner, the February earthquake has also highlighted the safety of buildings and who should pay if the safety code is increased. My name is Ernest Duval and um, I'm a heritage property owner and a builder in Christchurch. OK, we're standing on Morehouse Ave outside the Science Alive building, which is the old Christchurch railway station. It's quite an iconic structure. Um, our company has been tasked with doing some repairs to it. Prior to the earthquake, Ernest Duval was involved in earthquake-strengthening older buildings and since February the 22nd has been inside the red zone doing some temporary shoring work. He says the country as a whole is now on notice when it comes to older buildings. We could learn from this and say, well, if we you know, took down the chimneys or removed the, the apex of the gable, took the parapets down, did some basic securing, these buildings and other centres could come through and survive and we may have less damage. Uh, so maybe you know, there's a lot to be learnt from this. And could that be a relatively cost-effective measure then for those property building owners? Well, I think it depends on the nature of the building and the scale of it. But um, if it was approached progressively over a matter of time, if you say you took your chimneys down one year and you took your gable uh, down the next year, then you could probably get it so that it was, um, you know, the costs were palatable. Bruce Chapman says currently there's a disincentive for property owners to earthquake strengthen their buildings. Those costs can be so significant that they can undermine the whole value proposition of their investment in that particular building. And so they won't even maintain it because to lodge a building consent for maintenance may indeed trigger the earthquake strengthening requirement. So the public is placed at greater risk um, in that building for a longer period of time. The Property Council's Connell Townsend says the bigger the focus on public safety, the worse the effect on heritage. The difficulty that owners often have is they've got a reasonably old building, they've got to bring it up to code, 
they absolutely cannot afford to bring it up to code, so they have a number of options. Fire sale and try and get out. Um, then seek a resource consent to demolish and build something new that will meet earthquake standards and will provide much greater public safety. Or the worst option of the lot is what is called in the jargon demolition by neglect. Essentially you board it up um, and uh, pigeons get into it and it becomes a kind of guano infected wreck. Uh, probably until um, you know, some vandals get in and kind of deface it so much and essentially just has to be demolished. Uh, that is a very undesirable outcome and it's something that um, property owners and investors and heritage people, you know, hate. Building owner Ted Daniels suggests that such cases of demolition by neglect could be reduced if earthquake strengthening was tax deductible. If the, um, the government could make uh, earthquake strengthening a uh, tax deductible item instead of an, an item you can't deduct, uh, that would probably be very helpful and will probably make more building owners to take on the task of earthquake strengthening the building. Bruce Chapman says local authorities may well need to start giving consideration to policy relating to earthquake strengthening buildings. I think local authorities and probably central government as well may need to look at uh, issues around whether depreciation may be available on, on investment in earthquake strengthening or even potentially accelerated depreciation. Uh, there are other options such as enabling owners, building owners to expense the cost of earthquake strengthening um, in the year in which it's occurred or um, spread over the remaining economic life of the building. There are a variety of, of options available. The Dunedin City Council's heritage planner, Glenn Hazelton, says earthquake strengthening may become more attractive for building owners because of February's events. In the past, one of the challenges with earthquake strengthening has been that people haven't paid a premium for those spaces. The building owner will go out, earthquake strengthen their building, spend a considerable amount of money doing it, but then not get any extra return on those spaces. And that was always a problem. I think now that equation is starting to change because people are saying, yes, I want to be in a heritage building, but I also want to be in a heritage building that has been strengthened. And hey, I'm willing to pay a little bit more for that. The more that that equation starts to change after Christchurch, the more I think it's actually a positive for heritage buildings because you need those spaces to attract top dollar. The way things currently stand, however, there's concern that heritage buildings will be lost. The Trust's Bruce Chapman says he's in dialogue with councils now to establish key precincts of heritage buildings. What we're working on is to say to, to councils, look, there are areas of the city that are very, very important to the economics of the city. Um, commercial buildings that have existed for a very, very long time that may no longer be exactly fit for the purpose that they were built for at the time that they were built. They nevertheless form part of the character of uh, those, those cities and in many cases they form very, very important low-cost environments for new and small businesses to locate. So there's a balance to be struck between earthquake risk and public safety with the retention of those areas as an economic resource for cities. The Christchurch Mayor Bob Parker is taking at least one key lesson away from the February earthquake, be prepared. It's ensuring that your buildings are up to earthquake code and asking hard questions when you've got buildings in your community that are only either, uh, well, they're earthquake risks or they're only up to 33% of code or 50% of code or whatever. And you need to ask yourselves as a community, are you prepared to pay the price? Uh, because uh, inevitably one day 
somebody will have to pay that price if we don't do everything we can to prepare, to strengthen and to organise ourselves to be ready for natural disasters, not just of a seismic kind, but of many others as well. That Radio New Zealand Insight was written and presented by Dunedin correspondent Lorna Perry. It was produced by Philip Atolli with technical production by Colette Chapman.